All right, so let's figure out who's who, and then I can get to do a little bit of my quick story, and then we'll get into the content for the, uh, uh, related to the book, the reason that they, they asked me to do this. So uh, church planners, just want to know who the church planners are. Let me just see uh, any of the church planners. Okay, great. And want to be church planners, anybody on that score? And those pastoring any church, whether it's a church plant or you're in a church, you're serving on staff, fair enough. So I know that, that I've been told that I can't really call myself a church planter uh, because it's been so long. I mean, if it's been 30 years uh, since you planted the church, aren't you kind of old? Aren't you kind of out of the season? But here's what I've noticed. Uh, guys who play football like 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago still talk about it like they're football players, right? So I'm going to still call myself a church planter because I remember the day when I did that. And, and we did the parachute drop down in Atlanta, and we didn't know anybody, and, and we had this great sense of God's call and vision on our life. We imagined God was going to do amazing things. He kind of, you know, blow the doors off it. So when we, when we walked into our first Sunday, we hoped we'd have 400. I don't know what your numbers are, what you hope to get to, but, but we were hoping for 400 because we know the next Sunday you're going to have 200, and, and then if you have 200, you can build something from there. First Sunday, we had 104 people, and, and I know that because I was looking for 400, so, so I was counting everything. I mean, if it lived and breathed, we counted it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, even if it was a little creature running on the, uh, on the ground in the theater, we would count the thing. We had 104 the following week. We had 57. I don't know why, but we call ourselves the Heinz 57 Church because it didn't matter what we did for the next three years or so. We always had 57 people. It just didn't matter. And it seemed to me that most of the lessons, not all of them, just, just but a lot of the important lessons God wanted me to learn had to happen in those first few years. Felt like God called us to plant a church and decided not to go with us. Have you ever felt like that? Like, can be honest, like ever, God ever asked you to obey and then you did and then God like, ah, I'm out. <laughs> I felt like we, we went down, and God went down, and he said, ah, it doesn't look like that's going to work. So he just decided to go somewhere else. And during those next three, four years, some of the things God had to form in us, which has nothing to do with the topic I'm ultimately going to, but we're at this church planning arc environment, and I love Chris Hodges. I've known him for years, and, and I love Greg, and I love the team, and I love what God does here, and we love being a part of that and love the whole church planning world. And there were lessons that came in the early part that I probably couldn't have learned anywhere else. Like the first one was, uh, I discovered that I loved God and I knew God was good, but it didn't seem like he was good. And maybe my theology wasn't as good as I thought it was. God just whispered in, I don't owe you, I own you. And that was done with a loving kindness and I realized I had this sense like if I obeyed God, he owed me something. That was the, the early lessons. Along with it came, Kevin, you want more from people than for people, and that'll never work in the church. It just doesn't build. You need to want more for people than from people. Lessons, lessons like uh, what the big guys can do in leaps, I'm going to have to do in layers. You know what I mean by the big guys, right? 
that the people who have already built the church that, that, that you want to be in. So I'm, so, I'm, so I'm looking at churches that have gone places that we long to go, and, and we're 50-some people, and I, I realize I don't have the leadership to, to lead a church in the hundreds or the thousands, and, and, and just occurred to me as if God graciously whispered, son, you could get there if you walk with me. You could get there. It's just that what those guys do in leaps, you're going to have to do in layers. You know, it's okay if you have less talent than someone else. If you just multiply that talent, right? I mean, if it's five talent, two talent, or one talent, you look at the five talent, you're like, man, that just, you don't want to say it to anybody else, but they end up on the list, and it kind of ticks you off. You're working as hard as they do. And they go five to ten, and you're down there two, two talents, and it finally becomes four. And four doesn't look as good as 10, so that'll never get on the list, so nobody's talking about it. And yet, what you might say the big guys do in one fell leap, I might have to take 10 steps to get to the same place. And if I would just shift my thinking as a leader and say, oh, I'll get there someday, God help him, if he wants me to, it's in his hand. But I can do it layer after layer after layer after layer. It's okay, you can learn stuff from people who are ahead of you who seem to do things in leaps. You just do it in layers. So it took us about six, seven years to break the 200 barrier. There's no great story in that. I mean, nobody's celebrating that. It took us like 15 years to get to 1,500. I got a friend of mine, Kenneth Wagner, who, who probably should be up here having some of this conversation telling how, how to plan an early on church. They're like past 2,000 people in three years. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's amazing. It's fantastic. It took us like 18 years to get there. So when they say, oh, they were on lists and, and 12 stones done this and 12 stones done that, see, God was forming things in all the early stages when it was difficult to believe. And whatever stage you're in, God's forming something in you to build the church of the dream he put in you. And then he's never done growing you. Like this past year, and you're like, are you going to get to your teaching thing in the book? Yeah, I just said one more thing. Uh, this past year, I started a prayer uh, a year ago, June, and the prayer was, uh, God... You know, Abraham and then Moses. And scripture says that you gave more to Moses and revealed yourself more to Moses uh, than you did to Abraham. Moses got something more of you. I said, God, I would like more of you. And I just made my prayer uh, starting last June. Uh, God, could I have more of you? Could I have more of you? Could I have more of you? And I'd been praying that prayer for months. And then right around October, God has seemed to whisper back, you can have more of me, but you got to be more like me. You can have more of me, but you got to be more like me. And in that, I said, well, how am I not like you? He said, oh, son, you forgive other people. You just don't restore. And he pointed to two or three key relationships, one which happened to be my father. My parents divorced when I was about 12 years old at 17. I was done with my dad, and we have not had a reasonable conversation 
a one-on-one conversation since. It had been almost 40 years and no connection with him. And yet since then, my dad's come to faith and is out of church and on and on it goes. And I said, I've forgiven him. I've let it go. I says, yeah, but I'd like you to go restore. Why do I say that? Because I think there are things that God would let me be a part of next if I would just obey his prompt in the present. And anything we go talk about could never be a breakthrough for you unless it's preceded by obedience. Whatever is that thing that, that God's put in you and the fire in your gut and the vision for the next and the new. So yes, God's done some really cool things uh, with 12 Stone, through 12 Stone, and there's more we get to go do together, but all of it comes out of this journey with him where we're all learning. And one of the things that has hung with me uh, for some time now has been this, this, this struggle in our culture uh, where we know that the truth will set people free, right? We know this. You have to respond to that, right? I mean, we know the truth will set people free, but here's the, here's the challenge. It's, it's like hard to get the truth to people. Like, it, it's, it's hard to get that out in front of people. Not everybody wants to study the Bible. Not everybody cares. Not, not everybody's going to follow it. In fact, we're probably in the season of the greatest... Uh, biblical illiteracy in the history of our country, and we're pastoring into the midst. Am I the only one that feels the weight of this? Anybody else feeling the weight of this? Like, man, you, you want to get the, the power of God and the word of God in the lives of people, and you're there in the community for that very purpose, and while you're just feeling the weight of that, you know that the truth of God, the truth of Jesus would set them free, but you can't, they don't even know it like they used to. So uh, I've been on this journey of, you know, how do, you, uh, how do we do a better job getting God's story to people? Uh, because it seems like we've been trained really well how to get our story to people. And it seems like as churches, we're trying to figure out, even if it's from marketing or the like, I mean, how do we tell our story better? And, and there's been this story for some time. Uh, don't get better at telling your church's story. Get better at telling my story. And that's what would set people free. And that's what would help people. And so I've been on this internal dialogue that's been translated to uh, a book. And it's got some time and history of it uh, with it. So let me, let me jump into the point, the reason uh, they asked me to talk a little bit. Everybody wants to be a part of a big deal. Uh, we want to be in big deals. Uh, we want to make big deals. Uh, we love it when we become the big deal, if we're honest. You know, a little bit of us kind of likes being the big deal. That's cool. And I've been around some people in the midst of some big deals. You know, the people were the big deal. Uh, I was sitting with uh, Ed Bastian, who's the CEO of Delta Airlines. If you don't know Ed, uh, you certainly have heard of Delta Airlines. And uh, I was having breakfast with them, and they're closing the books for this past year. And I, I was uh, meeting, like, with the top and the bottom of the organization, meaning I had breakfast with Ed, and he's talking about year-end and, and how the books are going to close out. And meanwhile, uh, the next week, I'm having breakfast with my son, who's a CPA at Delta in corporate finance, and he's right at the bottom. He just graduated. He just got a CPA. He's, like, at the very bottom. And he's crunching numbers for the company to look at their profit margin for 2018. And he's like, Dad, we're working to pass $5 billion in our profit. Now, I don't know about you, but that'd go a long way in the church. 
I'm like, man, if we could bring that in the church, yes, Jesus, bring it in. Uh, I couldn't seem to pray it in, but, but my son, like, we could pass it, and I'm talking to Ed, who's the CEO. He's at the top. My son's at the bottom, and, 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 and there's this wonderful conversation going on. Could we? And they finally did. They passed $5 billion in profit margin in 2018. I don't care who you are. That's a big deal. You're a company, you're working with numbers like that. You got that many zeros after. And, and then they divvy up a portion of it to all the employees. 1.3 billion gets distributed in profit sharing to the employees. So my 24-year-old son gets a cut of that. The largest single check he's ever seen in his life. Now, it wasn't going to change my world, but it certainly was changing his. In fact, I thought he should send a little bit home back to daddy. It's a big deal. This past week, uh, I was with John Maxwell. You, you may have heard of him, read his leadership books. I don't know, but he certainly is a leadership guru. He's been a mentor and a, and a great friend. And in fact, Chris Hodges was up there as well. And, and John received what's called the Horatio Alger uh, Award. And it's a phenomenal, unique, distinctive, high society award where there's only 300 of them. And it's the who's who in America. And it kind of blows your mind. I'm like, well, that's a big deal. And then you can imagine uh, the disciples are hanging around with Jesus, and they're like, um, please tell me that what we're doing with you is a big deal. You know, please tell me that, that the trades I've made are going to make sense here. You know, because James and John, we had the fishing business, uh, the family fishing business, a big deal. We handed it off. We said goodbye. We walked away. Please tell me that what we're doing, you know, what you're doing about to become is really a big deal. Matthew, man, I had this great tax business. I walked away. Look what I've done. I've walked away. Please tell me that what we're doing is a big deal. And so in the midst of these kinds of conversations, you can imagine, Jesus says this, what does it profit a man, a woman? What does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their what? Lose their what? And what would someone give in exchange for their soul? And here's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was teaching his disciples how to discern between a big deal and a little deal. I mean, it wouldn't matter if you got the $5.2 billion in profit or whatever awards come your way. If that was the trade for your soul, See, it's all a big deal until it comes to your soul. And then when it comes to your soul, ah, oh, see, the soul is the big deal. And you and I have a call of God on our lives to help people figure out what the big deal is, right? I mean, that's on us. That's part of our privilege. That's part of our invitation. I, uh, when my kids were young, I have four kids, and they're quite... Um, spaced out in age. I have a 30-year-old, a, a and uh, my youngest is 15. The youngest, I don't want to talk about it, but it, it wasn't planned. Yes, I know how it works, but he wasn't planned, and, and then came along, and so there's 15 years. You ought to have a 15-year-old son explain to him how you're accidentally having another child, and he's going to be a, an older brother of a, a new baby. But, but nonetheless, I, I have quite a span of my kids, and, and when, when, when the first group was young, they were about three years old or so, I, I, I like to do something. It's just my way. I, I, I came home from work, and I'd take all the change out of my pocket, and it would just, you know, whatever handful of change. I got a couple quarters, a couple dimes, a couple nickels, pennies. Okay, and, and then I'd hold it out, and then I'd take something like a $100 bill, and, and, and I'd put it right there in front of them, and I'd say, all right, you can have whichever you want. 
what, what do you want? Now, th- this isn't, I'm not thinking this is difficult for the room, but, 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 it, but you're three years old, right? So what, what do you think a three-year-old is going to choose? What, what, what do you think? Are they going to take the $100 one single green bill, or are they going to take like the 87 cents in shiny change? What do you think they did? Coins every time. Every time they took the 87s, and I, and I just, I laughed. I marveled at it. I was so highly entertained. I did this several times. I, I quit doing it after a while because they, they figured out what, what was worth more. But, but why did they pick this? Because it's more and shiny. Because it's what? More and shiny. Because it's what? More and shiny. Say it with me, and I'll, I'll quit repeating it. Because it's what? More and shiny. Listen, the, the people in your territory are chasing things that they think are more and shiny. Jesus is the $100 offer. God offers a $100 life. The scripture is a gold mine of truth. And a world choosing 87 cent lives all the time. The wisdom of the world says, that's shiny, and there's more. And they're making decisions of marriage and family and identity and morals and finance and family and values. And in the midst of a world choosing 87-cent lives, you and I have been sent in with $100 bills to deliver the truth, to wake them up. Because it's always, always a three-year-old decision when you go after the 87 cents. Always. So how do we help them get to, if you will, the $100 life? And in God's grace, he gave us Jesus. In God's grace and wisdom, he said Jesus is the living word, but he gave us the written word, the Bible, so that we would know what on earth God is doing. And all we really have is, is, is this $100, if you will, Bible, the truth of God, the work of Christ, the living God to deliver to people. But the world isn't reading it. They're not listening to it. They're not engaging it. So so. What are we going to do? This weighs on us because that's the big deal. See, God's big story is the big deal. And maybe, maybe we've worked so hard to tell our story that we got to work a little bit harder to tell his story. Maybe his story is the big deal. And we kind of know this. But how, you know, how, how do we get to it? So God in his mercy um, tells us the big story from Genesis to Revelation. And in the midst of this, uh, God, if you will, lays out 10 big questions. So let me walk you through a thought process. I, these are tools. I don't know from here forward if this is going to be helpful to you. It's been helpful to us. I, I, I'm going to offer it to you. If it's a helpful tool, you can leverage it. 
If, if it's not and you say, oh, that sparked something and you can make something better, then make something better. But for the love of God, let's get the $100, if you will, wisdom out there. Let's get the Bible. Let's get God's big story out there. This is my effort to do it. You do better than that. But we got to get his story out, right? That's what sets people free. So uh, it's obvious in this world that people have, we'll call it 10,000 questions. And we feel the weight of that. Like we go, okay, there's questions. Everybody has questions in their life. And everybody's asking and answering questions. When it comes to finance and marriage, when it, when it comes to relationship and, and career, when, when it comes to how you do family, when it comes to how you parent, when, when, when it comes to how you date in life, when it comes to sexuality, when the world is just full of questions and then wisdom questions and on and on it goes. But here's what I want to suggest, that those 10,000 questions come down to 10 big questions. Say it with me. It comes down to what? 10 big questions. Just stay with me on this. I think that there are 10 big questions. And how you answer those 10 big questions is the foundation for how you answer all the other questions in life. This, this is the equivalent of your worldview. In a sense, if the 10,000 questions were the house, where you do life, where people ask all the practical questions, then the 10 big questions are the foundation. And we're often trying to answer the 10,000 questions without ever answering the 10 big questions. And we've come to a place maybe in our culture and in our world where if we don't do a better job answering the 10 questions, we're just gonna go in circles up here with the 10,000 questions. It might even apply to what Jesus said. Didn't Rick reference this earlier when Jesus talked about the house and the foundation? And when the storms come? And Jesus, in essence, was saying, listen, everybody's spending all their effort on the decoration in their house to make their lives look better. But it's not the decoration, it's the foundation that gives strength to life. If, if we don't help people answer the 10 big questions, then we've failed to help them find the foundation. And, and, and the, hey, know this. And those 10 big questions, hang on. You may have never thought about this before. God answers the 10 big questions in order in the Bible on purpose. Don't, don't even know if you've ever thought about it. God answers the 10 big questions in order in the Bible on purpose. And they are the questions everybody's asking. It may not be the exact way they ask them, but if you look at their life, they, in fact, let's put them on the screen. Let's, let's, just, let's just walk through the 10 big questions and you know, we'll walk through the first five and then the next five. And I'm not gonna teach them, I'm just gonna kind of put them in front of you. Is life an accident or am I here on purpose? That's always the first question. Because listen, how you answer that becomes the formation of your worldview. You, 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 you design your life around the answer to that question. If you are here on accident, and it doesn't matter, you just happen to come out of the ooze and evolution, and there was no first trigger, there was no God, no creator, well then, it doesn't matter how you live. Listen, the world is entirely consistent with their worldview when they say, I'm here by accident. But God says, you're here on purpose, and that's the first question he answers in the Bible. The next question. Why do bad things happen to good people? How many people have said, well, I can't believe in God, follow God because of the bad things that happen? 
This stuff is coming up all the time when they face challenges. And listen, if God created us on purpose, then why are there bad things? It's a fair question. We ought to have better answers. In fact, it's the next question he answered in the Bible. Can I really trust God? Because see, as soon as you're here on purpose and you're in the midst of good and bad things, because by the way, most people want to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? It's interesting. Nobody asks me, why do good things happen to bad people? Have you noticed that? Nobody's asking that. I mean, the world has to have an answer for the bad, but nobody has to have an answer for the good. Wow. So can I really trust God? It's the next question he answered through Abraham. Why can't I make my own rules? It's the next question he answered with Israel and Moses. Why can't God just accept me as I am? It's what he answered through the tabernacle and Old Testament worship. See, what God was doing is reforming us so that the 10 core big questions of the foundation of our life, there's, there's five more. Isn't one way to God narrow-minded? Well, that's what everybody believes. And listen, it is narrow-minded unless you understand the first five questions. You can't just isolate an answer, isn't one way to God narrow-minded? In fact, the fact that there's any way to God is rather surprising. But what does it mean to be forgiven? It's the next question. Why don't Christians look different from everybody else? Who needs the church? Are heaven and hell real? Let's just pause on the last one. Are heaven and hell real? Listen, if there is no heaven and there is no hell, then live like hell because it doesn't matter. I'm amazed by the Christians who don't believe there's a hell. So are you. In fact, how you answered those 10 questions. By the way, the hell thing, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. I mean, it's just amazing that people are like, I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, and the part I like most about Jesus is the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of forgiveness. Okay, what about everything else? Don't like any of that. Okay. That, that, how does that work? How you answer the 10 big questions becomes your worldview. Hey, stay with me. You ready? If any of you are parents, watch this. I only answered 10 big questions in my kid's life through their elementary years and their high school years and college years because I can't solve everything. We are overcomplicating parenting spiritually. If you want to spiritually raise your kids, you only got to answer 10 questions through their whole life. And the moment those 10 questions waver, everything falls. The only thing that breaks down in college is how they answer these 10 questions. That's why they fall. There's only 10 questions. Disciple those 10 questions, we're done. In fact, that's really how we disciple people into faith and how we disciple them in faith. And the house falls as soon as the storm comes if the foundation is weak. You see, those 10 questions are the chapters of the book, Grown Up Faith, because you can't grow up in faith without answering those questions the way Jesus did. In fact, more than that, maybe we have to rediscover and uncomplicate the way we teach the Bible. Because I think most people are puzzled by the Bible. It's been my experience that most people have bits and pieces of the Bible like a puzzle. For example, if I took a 500-piece puzzle, right? If I had a 500-piece puzzle right here, and, and I just handed all 500 pieces to you, and I said, put it together, how easy would it be for him to put that together without ever showing him, hang on, without ever showing him the top of the box? Think about this. Just go with me. If I hand him all 500 pieces, say, go put that puzzle together right here on the floor. Is he going to be, how, how difficult is that going to be without seeing the box? How many of you ever put a puzzle together in your whole life? Ever tried, ever cared? Okay, few of you, just the older you are, the more likely you have. Got it. All right. 
So, so what do you do to put the puzzle together? You look at the big picture, don't you? That's what you do. See, most people in life have bits and pieces, like somebody gave them 15 pieces of a puzzle. Okay, there's Adam and Eve, uh, there's a David and Goliath thing. Jesus, remember him, that's, you know, Christmas and Easter, Can't, you know, those are pretty popular. Uh, there's a heaven and hell, uh, turn or burn, I've heard those things. Uh, I've heard, but, but, but the Bible, it doesn't even go together for them. And then we try and give them one or two messages in 30 minutes to answer some of the 10,000 questions. And we're like, they've come to Jesus. It's all done. No, it's not. If Listen, if you have a verbal surrender to the idea of Jesus up here, but you haven't transformed your foundation, you are a Christian secularist and you will make all of your decisions out of your secular, which will feed right back into your Christian. We're so confused as a nation because we're not even clear on foundation. And God told us what on earth he was doing. And maybe we have to start presenting the Bible as the box top cover. Like, just let me show you the picture first. Instead of giving you all the puzzle pieces, what if I just start with the big picture? Maybe the way we teach the Bible needs to change in a society that didn't go to Sunday school and doesn't know the truth. And by the way, it's hard to debate a story you don't understand. Any fans of Star Wars? Just out of curiosity, any fans of Star Wars? Okay? Now, you fans of Star Wars, Luke Skywalker, who is his father? Darth Vader. Okay, first of all, all of you who don't know that don't even care. You're like, okay, hurry up, move on. See, listen, the moment I pass your knowledge, I pass your interest. So when I'm talking over your knowledge, I'm also talking over your interest. I didn't bring you in. I just pushed you out. And those of you who do know Star Wars, I probably know it better than you. So if I keep talking, eventually you're going to say, I don't know, because look, Star Wars didn't even get put on the screen in order. Right? How confusing was that stupid idea? I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Bible's not in order. When we tell people, go read it, it's like, go watch Star Wars. In the order they came out? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. I know. But if you knew what I knew, it'd be helpful. But you don't. I'm like, what we, like, if we don't change the way we deliver the Bible, we might not be able to give them the truth. And the big deal is that they would know the truth that sets them free. So I want to try something on you. I want to give you an overview of the Bible, the box top, if you will. We're going to put it on screen. I'm going to do it way too fast on purpose. If you care about it, you can look at it in the book. If it helps you, you can use it. If not, do something better than me. If you do something better than me, send it to me so I can use it. This is what I got so far, so this is what I'm doing. Got it? Here we go. The Bible is one story. The Bible's how many stories? One story. So they're going to start putting stuff on the back screen at the speed at which I deliver it. The Bible's how many stories? The Bible is one story in two parts. When I do it, I do it with my hands like this. The Bible is one story, two parts. If you want to do it with me and you want to have kind of a kindergarten moment where you get to be a part of the experience, you can see just how I taught it to my children because this is how they've learned it. Here we go. The Bible is one story in two parts. 
Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament are a mirror image, one of the other. In fact, there are five major events in the Old Testament, five major events in the New Testament, and they mirror the other. And it all turns on the person of Jesus Christ. Where everything begins, it ends. Here's how the story goes. The first major event is God and righteous people in paradise. God created us in his image. Everything was awesome. It was all good. Our relationships were good. The next major event, Satan and sin enter. And when we sinned, we brought death and disease upon ourselves. Now we brought bad in the midst of good, and everything went ugly. The next major event is the world is judged and destroyed. This was by flood. In other words, the inclination of mankind's heart was to do evil toward God, and that had multiplied until finally God said, all right, I'm going to give you a do-over. Because everybody believes if mankind had a do-over, we'd be better. So we got a do-over. It's a rough do-over, I'll confess. But it starts all over with the flood of everybody but Noah and the family. And we get a new start. And the new start multiplies for generations and comes to the next major event, a one-world government. A time in the history of humanity when mankind had one government all together sharing the same economics and the same language, and they were building a tower. It's called the Tower of Babel. And when they were building the Tower to God, it was pretty much about them. However, they failed to multiply and reproduce and expand across the earth, so God confused their languages and distributed them in tribes. The end of the first four major events covered in the first 11 chapters of Genesis so that we would know what on earth God is doing. The next major event begins in Genesis 12 and covers the whole of the Old Testament, and it is the Old Covenant. Say it with me. It is the Old what? Covenant, the old covenant. Now we call it the old covenant because there's a new covenant, but who cares? We're on the old covenant right now. So God makes a covenant with Abraham and he makes a promise to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I'll give you a great land. Through you will come a great Messiah. That is all there is to the Old Testament. God fulfilling three promises. I will make you a great nation through him. He had to have a child and it grew into the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, God's holy people. I'll give you a great land and he multiplied their land territory. And through you will come a great Messiah. Now, we know there's a lot more story, but what God really did is he established a covenant that through you, I'm going to solve the problem of sin that brings separation and death and loss. And along came Jesus. And everything turns on the person of Jesus. In fact, everything in the Old Testament points to it, and everything in the New Testament builds from it. Everything turns on Jesus because he was the fulfillment of the promise, the Messiah. From Abraham to him, it's been fulfilled. And now in the New Testament, we have a mirror image of every event. The New Testament is the new covenant. The new what? Covenant. So he established a covenant with Abraham, and that's awesome. But Jesus came and established a new covenant, and that's like two thumbs up. And so now we have a mirror image between the two. And so it was the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel, God's holy people. Now it's the 12 apostles, the church, God's holy people people, and we're under a new covenant whereby we can be forgiven, and we don't have to follow the tabernacle and the temple. We got Jesus who made a way for us, and we can be forgiven and restored. What an awesome God, and by the way, if you go to a mall and you watch, uh, you know, kind of don't know where you're going, but you want to figure out how to get somewhere and where you are, you look on the map, and it says, you be here, right? This is where we are right now in the midst of the new covenant. The next major event is a mere image of a one-world government. In other words, the next major event, everything is moving toward a one-world government. If you think about it, hey, if you think about it, 
Everybody throughout history has tried to control the entire world and nobody has succeeded. But it will happen one time, the Antichrist. And we will come under one economic system and one language and it mirror images. The next major event is the world is judged and destroyed. Peter says it this way, previously by flood, this time by fire. The next major event, Satan and sin exit. God brings an end to his reign and rule on earth, and all who followed him join him in the lake of fire. And the Bible closes with God and redeemed mankind with him in paradise. And where everything began, it ends, and the tree of life that we lost in the garden, we now have in heaven for the healing of the nations. Come on, give it up for God. He is very much on purpose. And the moment you see it, the moment you see it, you're like, well, I knew all that. Well, good. That's the big picture. Maybe we have to start telling people the big picture so that when they see the big picture and they get the 10 questions, they can begin to answer the 10,000 questions in life, which only makes sense inside this. Yeah? See, that, the, the purpose of grown-up faith is to help the body of Christ uncomplicate the Bible and change how we bring it to the world because this is the big deal. And why doesn't God bring an end to all things? Because he's patiently waiting, not any, wanting anyone to perish. We have this temporary precious period of time in which the spirit of God is patiently holding out so that the work we're doing in the church can flourish under his spirit, right? Right? That was really beautifully said. There was very little support from you for a really well-delivered thought. Now, how many times have you as communicator knew you delivered the truth and they're just like, yeah, we're not looking for, yeah, we're looking for, yeah. But I might not be a good enough communicator, so that's all right. That's all right. So what should we be doing? So let me give you the next thought. I've wondered, I don't know, but I've lived long enough and pastored long enough through a generation of what some of us would know to call the seeker-sensitive church or the attractional model, and we're watching the culture shift, and I believe God used that immensely, but I believe something got lost that God's going to do next, and that is it was the intention of God that every follower of Christ be a witness, an ambassador, that everyone can help someone get to heaven. Everyone can help someone get to heaven. And I have a sense that over the past couple of decades, we took it out of the hands of the people and said, all you got to do is invite them to church. I'll lead them to Jesus. And they've lost their place in people who've been empowered by the same Holy Spirit that's in me and that's in all the rest of us. And we ought to be sending them out. They ought to be moving like wherever God has them on map, they're on mission. And maybe we've lost that. Maybe something we once knew how to do, we've lost a little bit of. Maybe we need to entrust the big story to them. Maybe they should learn the 10 questions. Maybe they need to know how to bring in the world. So, I, so we're, we're working on this. We, we haven't figured it out at all. I, the, the, here's, here's what we're in the midst of. I put together what I'm going to call the roadmap. Nothing new under the sun. Here it is on the screen. This is this cultivate, sow, harvest stuff. So if you guys would put that imagery on the screen and I'll walk us through it. 
I, I think you can take scriptural, and if you've heard this, like back in the 80s, this stuff were, was a little bit popular, and since I'm old enough to have lived in the 80s, I get to remember it and pretend that it's new. It's not. Nothing's new under the sun. The way Jesus laid it out, using agriculture, that you cultivate the soil, and he would call it the heart. you got to break through hard ground. And when that is able to receive, then you sow the seed. The seed would be the word of God. But you don't sow the seed if you haven't cultivated. So that's where, where, where you kind of do the work of the relationship, and then you sow the seed. And then harvest is where, where they make that decision and engage and step into the kingdom. Okay, but for us, in our circles, in our church, in our environment, we would rather say it like this. There is a movement for how you are an effective witness for Christ, and it begins by living this out. What I'm communicating to the people around me is this. You matter to me. Then you matter to God. Then God needs to matter to you. Now walk, stay with me in this. I think one of the reasons the next generation doesn't buy into this evangelistic thing is because they have images of confrontational evangelism from then and even now that they're rejecting. Nobody, nobody would offer 87 cents rather than $100. Are you kidding me? So let me make sure I got this right. The people you love are living 87 cent lives. They could have a $100 life that they were created for, and you don't want to talk to them about it at all? Ever? You don't care? By the way, if you believe what Jesus said, if there really is a heaven and a hell and God's waiting because he turns on the line, is this not the big stuff? If, what does it profit someone to get in the whole world and lose their soul? I mean, is this, if we get this stuff, this becomes real, Right? And we carry this in us, so we're all figuring out, how do we help a people? How do we practice it ourselves and help our people become who God created them to be? Well, the first thing I want them to do is live out, you matter to God. Like, like what I have to do in my world everywhere I go is demonstrate you matter to God. You matter, or you, rather, you matter to me. You matter to me. You matter to me. How I do, handle work, how I relate to people at work, how I na navigate relationships with my neighbors. I mean, you matter to me because, because, they're not going to be convinced they matter to God until they matter to you, right? That's where old, old, old evangelism kind of broke down. In other words, in other words, you have to get beyond yourself. You, you, you have to be about others. But that was Jesus anyway, wasn't it? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, Philippians 2, consider others better than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. So I watched this unfold in a way that really marked me. My wife, uh, Marsha, has done a couple marathons, and this past November, she did the New York City Marathon, which is impressive. And I applaud her, well done, baby, and she finished it, and that was, that was spectacular. Uh, so here's the story of how it unfolded. You, you have to, she had to go, before she started the, the, 20, the, the marathon of 26.2 miles, she, she had to go to Staten Island for like three hours. It was horrific. But while she was there, she was there with another friend, Ed Bastian, a bunch of, bunch of other friends, and met a friend of Ed Bastian whose name was Marshall. And here's how you know his name was Marshall, because he had this medical tape with his name on it plastered across the front of his shirt. And his name was what? Read it, everybody. Yeah, his name was Marshall. And you knew it was Marshall because it said Marshall. So she's talking to Marshall, and he's a really nice guy. He's a, an attorney in New York City and has been for several years. And, 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 you know, he's a nice guy and friend of Ed and became a friend of Marshall. And a whole bunch of people were building relationships that great. And so then off they go into the marathon. But, but Marshall, Marshall has run the marathon like 12 times, and he can run. He's done it in like three hours and 
Three hours to three hours and 30 minutes. I mean, the guy can run. He's done this several times, so he has good times, and he gets a lot of accolades, a lot of success for accomplishing that. Good for him. But this time, he decided that he wasn't running for himself. He would run to help others. So Ed Bastion was one of his friends, and, and, and Ed started to have some knee trouble, and, and he had to walk several miles and then get some help and walk a little bit and get some help. So Marshall decided to walk with him. Like, he's killing his time. Like, his time isn't even working. Like, he, like, his time is ticking off like, like he can't even run. But you know what? He's setting aside his own great time and accomplishment to be about Ed. Then he decided to go on. He helped Ed enough. And while he was running, he came across the other guy. A guy flew in from Europe to run it. And, and the guy was having some heart issues. And because Marshall was a former EMT, he stopped his race and spent all that time for quite a while helping that guy, getting him to medical help and helping him revive and bring him about and then went back into the race. I'm like, what, like does this guy actually run? What, what is, like, who goes in the New York City Marathon to help people? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. You're there to, to, to like finish the run and do something. Well, he runs along and he comes across my wife, Marsha, around mile 20. And as he passes her, you can see it's a bit challenging for her. You know, they say you hit the wall at 20 miles, right? I think you hit the wall at two miles. That's mine. I can run two miles. I hit a wall. I'm done. We're good. 20 miles. Maybe it is. And so he decided to help her and run alongside her. So he starts running with her, and he's been through it several times. So he tells her what's ahead and the curves and the hills and the, everything, and he's encouraging her, you go, Marsha. And he said, by the way, do you know why I have this on? Marshall on my name? She said, no, no, why, why, why do you have your name on your chest? She, he says, watch this. And then he runs to the side. By the way, I don't know if you're familiar, but this marathon in New York City, this is like a parade for 26.2 miles. There are millions of people just along the sidelines the whole way cheering you on. Well, he runs to the sidelines and he puts his hands up so they can see his name. And all the people start cheering, Marshall, Marshall, Marshall. Practice it with me. They start cheering what? Marshall. And he's just so excited, runs back to the middle with Marsha. She said, that awesome? She said, yeah, that's great. And a few minutes later, it dawns on him. He said, oh, my goodness, I can help you. She said, how can you help me? Watch this. He said, watch this. He pulled it off. He said, put this on. He took off the two L's. And he gave it to her. He says, it now says, Marsha. Watch this. He ripped his own name off his chest and made it about somebody else. Then pushed her to the side. Said, get close to the crowd. Put your hands up. And she did. And what do you think? Everybody started yelling. They did. My wife says, this is fantastic. I mean, she's got her own, like, cheering, like thousands of people are yelling her name. I'm not making this up, and here's how you know. Do we have the picture? I think we send it in. Check that out. There it is with it on her shirt. And that, that's stunning. Like, how, how do you make that stuff up? In fact, I, I didn't even know who, who Marshall was, but I was taking video. And, and as they came to the end of the run, Marshall decided, hey, I like to run the last mile all out. And he took off and he realized, you know what? She's struggling. So he backed up and he ran with her all the way through the finish line. And I know that because I was in the stands videoing the end and I watched this guy rather friendly with my wife. 
and I have it on video. <laughs> and then I found out that when they crossed the finish line, because he was EMT, he knew what was going on with her body and the shakes that were coming and starting. And, and he said to him at the end, she needs a poncho. And they said, oh, no, she doesn't have the wristband for the poncho. He said, I'm an EMT. She needs a poncho. You're going to have extra. And he insisted, and he got her a poncho, wrapped it around her. She called me. We set a spot to meet, and he brought her to me. So from a distance, the same guy, I look at the video camera, I look at him, and this guy is walking my wife to me. I'm like, what can happen in a race, honestly? <laughs> he walks up, he introduces himself. My name's Marshall. It's been my privilege to meet your wife. Let me tell you the five things that are going on with her body. Go get her some potassium. Go get her some pretzels. Go get her some Gatorade. Help her out. I now entrust your wife to you. I said, thank you for my wife. I don't even know what that means, but I'll take my wife. I think that evangelism begins with ripping your name off your chest for somebody else. Don't you think that's the beginning of evangelism? And maybe you don't get to talk about God until you've already lived like Jesus with him. Then it makes sense you matter to God. And if you guys put that back up there, that's where the 10 questions in the big picture. Hey, say with me, say with me. Here's just a thought. Here's just a thought. Stay with me on this. Sometimes evangelism has just become cultivate, 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 do good works, cultivate, 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 do good works, and we've never changed the conversation. And at some point, maybe we need to teach our people how to change the conversation. Because if you're in conversation, people are going to reveal how they're answering the 10 questions. And at some moment, you get to pray about them for bad things that are happening in their lives. At some point, you get to talk about how they matter to God and how life is on purpose and how God designed something greater for them. At some point, you get to engage them in the weight of life when they think they chose a $100 life and they're having an 87 cents experience. And you get to talk about the difference. Somewhere the conversation has to change, and maybe that's where the 10 questions, and maybe that's where this big picture of the Bible comes in play. And then harvest. It's why in the eighth chapter, with John Maxwell's help, I wrote in the four pictures of God that most people have. So that in that chapter, somebody would understand what it means to come to faith through Jesus. And that there isn't a ladder that you climb to get to God. There isn't a fence that separates you and that God couldn't cross and you couldn't cross and there's no way to God and he wants to keep you out. And you're not a, a, a garbage can that's been thrown out. But Jesus opens a door and you have to open the door. And a door is used to either let things in or keep things out. And everybody has a heart's door and you make decisions about God. Are you keeping them out or letting them in? All that in the book to maybe see if God could help us rethink and uncomplicate the Bible in a season in our nation where perhaps we've lost biblical literacy and the real substance of truth that could set them free. My son, 
the 24-year-old who works for Delta. He, uh, he called me up after, in the midst of all this $5.2 billion stuff. He said, Dad, can I come out to the house? He lives down in Atlanta. Yeah, come on out. He said, I just need some time to talk. He said, Dad, um, I'm sitting in the midst of my dream job. I'm making money that I thought would take years before I ever made it. The company just brought in over $5 billion, and I'm at the party. And I start weeping inside. And I can't stop myself. And I realize they all think this is a big deal. That everybody has gotten these huge checks. And I began to pick out the people I know. And not a one of them's going to heaven. I mean, Dad, I've watched you lead people to Christ your whole life, and it occurs to me I've never led anyone to Jesus. I don't think God's going to let me go make money in business and make that the big deal. Can you help me figure out how to get in business and keep the big deal the big deal? I've got to figure out how to lead people to Jesus. And I don't know how to do it in the real world now. I thought, wow. Maybe if we would just ask each other that in the church and realize that wherever God has put you on map, God has you on mission to live sent. He sent our people into the world that maybe just as many people would come to Christ outside the walls as they do inside the walls. And maybe that's the next and new that God would want to do. You know, I don't know if that helps you. That's the journey we're on. That's what we're trying to figure out. That's why we wrote the book. I don't know if stuff's helpful to you. I honestly don't. Uh, we tried to do stuff like grownupfaith.com that, that, that has a pastor section to it that tries to put tools together that's helpful to pastors. I don't know if that helps you. You know, if it does, great. Maybe if it inspires something and you got a better way, so be it. But can I pray for us that God uh, would help wake us up and walk us into a new season? For Father, the things that you're doing are spectacular, but there are more lost people than found among us. Oh God, would you awaken uh, in us an awareness that we live in a world built for a $100 life living 87 cent lives. Maybe God... This right here, this moment, maybe there's a few pastors here. Maybe there's a few lay people. I don't know. Maybe there's a few staff members right here. And you're awakening something in us. You know, maybe this material doesn't help, but maybe this isn't their tool, but it's the awakening to the tool you'll use. So while we give you thanks, God, we pray that you would place in our hands a fresh passion and fire for your word that you would awaken us to our distinct and unique place in the world among us to bring your word into the lives of people.
And then, God, we would go after this with abandon. That maybe, I don't know, God, maybe, at least I prayed this, maybe what you are stirring in my son, Jake, at 24, you would stir in an entire generation of people and say, oh, God, help me figure out how to help people know Jesus and get to heaven. It's the really big deal. Help us be that people in Christ's name. Amen.